Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Why drag it out? <laughs> you know, why not just take the Aiden dying medication and say goodbye with consciousness and be done with it? The COVID-19 pandemic has forced Americans to confront death on a scale that few of us have seen in our lifetimes. As the coronavirus continues to spread, Americans have started to ask themselves questions that are usually reserved for old age. Questions like, how do I want to die? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and a health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. In this episode, physician-assisted death. Is it ethical? Should I have the right to end a life, even if that life is my own? Zeke, over the last few decades, death has really changed. You know, we used to die pretty quickly. Now it's a long, drawn-out process. There are interventions like CPR that used to be extreme. They're now considered pretty routine. People throw everything at a patient in an intensive care unit. So we've been trying to control death, but all this technology has raised a lot of ethical questions. Yeah, I, I think this end-of-life care issue all began in 1976 with Karen Ann Quinlan. She was a young woman who passed out at a party, went into a persistent vegetative state, and the question is, could they end her ventilator or not? And then it became a big issue in the 1980s, lots of state Supreme Courts ruling on whether people had a right to end life-sustaining treatment like ventilators. And simultaneously, there was this big push, especially by bioethicists and others, to give people more control, allow them to say, no, I don't want to be resuscitated, or here's my advanced directive, here's how I want you to treat me, you know, fill out in detail, no, I don't want ventilators, I don't want artificial nutrition and hydration, I don't want dialysis. And then in the 1990s, it sort of exploded as a question not of refusing life-sustaining treatment, but having the right to end your own life through physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Yeah, and then you have somebody coming up like Jack Kevorkian, right? So Kevorkian was a pathologist who sat around the country in his deathmobile van, and he would help you die after what he said was an assessment of whether you really uh, had a, a condition that was going to lead to death. And then he actually helped somebody die on 60 Minutes. He actually gave a lethal injection. That was over the line, the state of Michigan, put him in prison. And despite all of the bad press with people lining up on one side or the other of you know whether Dr. Kevorkian was a real hero or not, the country really was moving around him. Yeah, it was in the late 1990s when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that you know there was no constitutional prohibition against states adopting physician-assisted suicide laws. That was up to the state. And 
Oregon passed it in 1997. Then came Washington State, then Vermont, California, Hawaii, New Jersey, Maine, as well as uh, Montana, where the court has said it's okay, and the District of Columbia. I often say to my students that, you know, aside from gay marriage and maybe marijuana, this is sort of the biggest sea change in American attitudes. These laws have picked up incredible momentum in the last few years. And it's important to note that they're really not what Dr. Kevorkian was doing, which was at the very end, you know, giving lethal injections to people and not really getting clarity about their emotional situation, were they depressed, were they really doing what they really wanted to do. These death with dignity laws engage a doctor in a process in which the doctor helps the patient figure out what his or her preferences are at the end of life. And there's no lethal injection. You get some medication, the doctor helps you figure out how to use it. To learn more about medically-assisted death statutes, we spoke to Peg Sandine. She's the executive director of the Death with Dignity National Center in Portland, Oregon. Her organization promotes death with dignity laws based on Oregon's model legislation in states around the country. And they provide information, education, and support about death with dignity as an end-of-life option to patients and their family members. So clearly we're in the middle of a period in which uh, some people at least are thinking more about death. How has that affected your organization? Are you getting more inquiries? Are you seeing more traffic to your website in the midst of COVID-19? Oh, absolutely. Originally, when the WHO declared the pandemic, our request for information for Death with Dignity just absolutely plummeted. You know, for the first couple of weeks, everybody's attention turned to COVID. It just completely turned off. You know, finally, we're just at this point where it's it's really about what should be in my advanced directive um, related to COVID. So I would say that we don't know the data yet. But it appears from just our anecdotal experience with our organization that folks are really turning their attention to their advanced directives to have some control at the end of life. I think many more people will have written their advanced directives or revisited them to update them post-COVID. I think that that's what we're going to see in the long run. Peg, I understand your organization draws a line at anything like active euthanasia, the active engagement of a doctor in the death process. For example, you wouldn't allow a doctor to actually administer a lethal injection to a patient. But why? What's the difference between death with dignity and active euthanasia? The underlying concept of the Death with Dignity Act is that there's choice for everyone involved, and it has to be patient-driven. And with something like euthanasia, you move out of that underlying concept of patient-driven. And so when you say that operationally, patient-driven, what does that mean? And with your legislation, what can a doctor do and not do? The patient has to do the request. The patient has to do, essentially in most states, three requests, so two oral and one written. And the patient has to demonstrate that he or she has capacity to make healthcare decisions and has to be terminally ill determined by two physicians, not one, but two. And, and the prognosis standard in all the states is six months. And so all of those steps that the patient has to go through, nobody else can go through it for them. They have to be the one that actively does it. And the ingestion of the medication in the very end has to be patient-driven. It can't be given by another person or by the physician. So every step along the way is patient-driven. So, Peg, just just to clarify, so in the United States, 
the key criteria is you've got to be terminally ill. You have to have six months or less to live by a doctor's determination. I would note that in Europe, it's just the opposite. They don't care whether you're terminally ill or not. They care whether you're suffering and the suffering can be alleviated or not. But we have no suffering. You could be terminally ill and have absolutely no pain, no other suffering, and you can still get euthanasia. Is that right? Not euthanasia. You could I mean, uh, assisted suicide. Yes, right. Correct. You could qualify for uh, um, medical aid in dying in, in those nine states under the parameters that you suggest. Yes. And I think you would prefer to call it uh, assisted death, not assisted suicide, because suicide is a red herring. I think it's not suicide. I mean, I, you know, I have a clinical career as a social worker and what I would consider a, a traditional suicide and the work that I have done with terminally ill people who are dying, who actually want to live but are dying and just want to control the timing and manner of their death. They are absolutely two different things. The, those folks present differently, look different. Everything is different about them. And so Although, the Peg, you, you will admit that the data are unexpected in the following way. Everyone initially who advocated for assisted suicide uh, said, you know, we've got to stop death with unremitting pain where patients are dying in pain. And all the evidence we have is, nope, these are not patients who are dying in pain. It's not about pain. Even cancer patients, it's not about pain. There is this, I would say, contradiction between our view of what we're doing and what's actually happening on the ground. So say the library asked me to do a presentation about death with dignity, or you know, I teach a college class about it. People want to talk about pain. And, you know, I think it's probably fear of pain and not pain itself that is driving them. When they think about death with dignity, the number one thing that the general population thinks about is pain. If you sit and listen to advocates like me testify in public hearings, which I fly around the country and, and do this in state legislatures all over the country, you will not hear me talk about pain. And my predecessors in my organization didn't talk about pain in the same way. And I'll just say that I believe pain at the end of life is a medical emergency and not a reason to use death with dignity. So what, what is it about in your experience? It's about control? It is about control. It's about a, a protracted dying experience. When I think about health policy, I think about what is the underlying social condition that's going on and what is the policy answer, you know, that we need to come to. And so in my sense, the underlying social condition that's going on is that everything about modern medicine has changed the way we die. And there hasn't been a resulting answer from medicine to address the protracted dying process. And so one of those answers is certainly death with dignity. It's a narrowly used answer. It's certainly not for everybody, but it is one option. It is one way that folks can take control of a dying process that is protracted and can be very difficult. So besides the fear of pain and control, is the burden on one's family also a factor for some people? And is this is something that many commentators have worried about. So when we look at the data, what, what's interesting about the data that we have about the Death with Dignity Act, so every state has the requirement in their piece of legislation, all of the nine states that have enacted have a requirement to do a um, report to the people or to the legislature. So you can go in every state and look at patterns related to death with dignity. And they ask physicians who are prescribers to describe why the patient wants to use the medication. 
the number one reason why physicians give that their patients chose this is an inability to participate in activities that bring joy to one's life, loss of autonomy, and loss of dignity. So those are sort of the cluster of three reasons that people tend to choose death with dignity. There is a report where physicians can check burden on family. That's a a rarely used number, but there is some reported concern about a burden on family that is reported in that data. And can you just, for the record, specify what medication we're talking about? Yeah, I can. It used to be Secanol, and Secanol is no longer widely available for a number of reasons. And so there is a cluster of of medications that have come together that repress um, respirations and stop the heart. And there's a couple of different formulas that are used to do that. Can, can I, 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 I want to challenge you again on something you said that these kind of deaths, assisted suicide are not like suicide. And yet the number one reason for asking for physician assistance is not having joy in my life, not being able to do joyful things that give my life fulfillment and meaning. Isn't that what suicide is about? That does seem to be a major reason for suicide. The only difference is one's got a terminal diagnosis and the other may not. But these people want to live, but they have a terminal illness that's killing them. They already know they're dying. And, and that's the distinction for me. Folks who are sort of, and I don't, you know, like traditionally suicidal that we would think about, they don't want to live anymore. They want to escape their current situation. Folks who are using death with dignity want to live. But there's no option for that. That that door is closed. And so the alternative for them, for this small number of people, is to control the timing and manner of that death. My understanding is that the longer these laws are on the books, the greater proportion of people who, what would you say, register for these programs actually take advantage of them. Is that right? Um, it, it is going up as a proportion of all deaths, right? So that controls for population increases when we look at that statistic. But really, it has gone from, you know, like two out of 10,000 deaths to six out of 10,000 deaths or nine or 12. You know, so it, it still is a very low number. If you put the raw data on a graph, it does look like it's going up, right? But when you really consider that in Oregon, in 20 some years, we've had 1,500 deaths or 2,000 deaths related to death with dignity. That's a very small number of individuals. Peg, so how do you, I mean, this seems, it's always struck me as strange. We're trying to solve this big social problem and no one uses it. Literally six out of 10,000 people who die use it. I don't understand how the advocates can say, we're really addressing a major problem with death with dignity and no one uses it. I mean, it seems to me a lot of wasted effort. But the thing is, is that it's not just about the number of people who use it. It's the number, then there's a number of people who qualify and don't ingest the medication. And then there's a number of people who consider it as an option as they think about how do I want to die or, you know, what do I want to have happen? If it's going to happen, how do I want it to happen or what can I control the most? It is one more option that is impactful for people. I talk to people all the time who are considering it and they're, and you know, I talk them through all of their options, whether it would be to continue treatment, 
you know, death with dignity, um, palliative care, hospice, all of the options. It is a very few number of people who choose this one option, but it is just increasing the number of choices for folks at the end of life. And if you think about dying, I mean, you think about dying a lot, you you write about it. One of the things that happens is that people's choices get taken away from them. I do not believe that death with dignity only improves the dying process for those people who ingest the medication. It improves the dying process for a whole bunch of people who consider it, who feel like they have options. It has led to monumental changes in how we die in Oregon. We are a leader in palliative care, um, you know, access to hospice, in pain control at the end of life. We have so many things related to how we die here, and many of them tie back to the original Death with Dignity movement. And I think that nearly every person clinically who has studied this has come to some conclusion about how Death with Dignity has improved dying in other areas. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Okay, Zeke, when we're doing that interview, I got the sense that you and Peg don't really see eye to eye on this issue. Now, some people might be surprised about that since you wrote this famous article a few years ago in The Atlantic that was titled, Why I Hope to Die at 75. It seems to me you were arguing for having control over how you die, over how your life ends. Doesn't Peg want the same thing? Well, Jonathan, as you know, I didn't give the article my own title, I Want to End My Life at 75, which isn't my view. What I don't want at 75 is life prolonging treatment. I do want to live out a full life and an active life and a fully engaged life. And I want to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships, but then I don't want to prolong my life. And I think there is an important difference between prolonging my life with all sorts of medical interventions and actively ending my life for a reason, whatever that reason may be, pain or otherwise. Okay, Zeke, I I understand that your real position in that article, and I've heard you talk about this a lot, is that you wouldn't want to have life-extending treatment for, you know, a very difficult dying process. And I I totally get that. I think, you know, most of us feel that way. Then we have this concept of sort of pulling the plug, which I guess to most people means, you know, just turn the machine off and I'll die. Now, you and I both know that's not exactly the way that works, but 
What's the difference ethically between pulling the plug, withdrawing treatment, and actively giving medication to hasten or initiate the dying process? So actually, it's a really good question. So look, medical aid in dying is I'm going to give something and put something in your body to end your life. Whereas withdrawing life-sustaining treatment like a ventilator or like dialysis, those are really letting nature take its course. You are on the dying trajectory and we're not going to use medical interventions to stop you from dying. We are going to take things away from your body, not put things into your body. And those are two different understandings of control. And by the way, when we put something in your body, that really does implicate someone else in your death. Whereas if we're stopping treatments, we're not implicating someone else in your death. We're just saying, you can't put that into my body. And I think it's the putting something in that I think is an active ending that you know, I don't buy. And the other one, I think it really is nature that's ending your life. Well, these distinctions, which you and I talk about a lot, and we talk about them with our students and colleagues a lot, they're really hard for people to keep track of. I think what it boils down to is many, many people, you know, do want a law that says they can control the way they die with a doctor's help. Uh, One of the most recent states that has created such a law is Maine. So our producer, Max, spoke to Karen Wentworth. Karen is one of the first people in Maine to actually get the end-of-life medication prescribed. It's been a year and a half that doctors have been predicting my death. I am 63 years old, and I have cancer of the appendix. I was first diagnosed in 2012. The original symptoms I thought were menopause, and it turned out there was a tumor on my ovary. And then when they went in for surgery, they found that it was actually the appendix. And cancer of the appendix is very rare, and I have a rare form of cancer of appendix. So the blessing of it is that it does not metastasize, stays in the abdominal region, but it creates mucus. And then that interrupts digestion, causes blockages of the intestines, general nausea, trouble digesting, eating, going to the bathroom. Since the initial diagnosis, Karen has had a series of very painful surgeries. What I have left after these six surgeries for this disease is like a descending colon. There's been a lot of intestinal resections, ovaries are gone, gallbladder. So it's slow growing, which is okay, but it's our digestion is a huge part of how we live and how we feel. So the impact is pretty big. Her last major surgery was in late 2018. She was in the hospital for 50 days. I've learned that they basically were sending me home with the expectation that I was going to die. So I had that expectation that I was going to die. Maine's Death with Dignity Act went into effect about a year later, in December 2019. But Karen had been following the movement for a long time. So when I knew it was happening in Maine, I was excited by the prospect. And even when I was out of the hospital, anyone that came to visit me, I would ask them if they would sign the petition. So I was very glad when it passed because I believe that everyone should have that choice. I'm terminal. There are no more treatments available. Another surgery would kill me. So I jumped at the chance. It was a no-brainer for me. I was excited. I think I was like the second or the third person in the state to sign on, which as, you know, a mini-activist, that made me sort of proud to get behind it. 
So in Maine, it's a 15-day process, and you are interviewed three times by two doctors. So I was interviewed by my palliative doctor twice and by my oncologist once. They were new to it. This was brand new for them. And they did a really good job as far as being considerate and asking questions to make sure it wasn't depression or I didn't have financial concerns or um, I was safe at home in my relationships. So they were very thorough around that and very conscious of the process, the gravity of what they were doing. And the same with the pharmacist. I really felt I almost wanted to comfort doctors and the pharmacists and the people involved because I could see that they really got how important this was and how new it was and the decision that they were making or helping me to make, I should say. Before her illness forced her into early retirement, Karen worked at a domestic violence resource center. And I was a public school teacher and I had a Greek and Italian specialty food store and I've written two books for Down East Books. So I have one of those very... I've done a lot of things, thankfully. So how it is predicted that I will die is through an intestinal blockage and or an infection. I've never gone more than a couple of years without a, a serious blockage. The other thing is that my colon tissue might open and then feces would go into my system and infection. And both of those things might happen together. So it takes about three or four days to pass from that. And I know from experience how painful it can be because when you have an intestinal blockage, they don't perform surgery right away. They wait 24 hours to see if you unblock. So that 24 hours with all the morphine in the world is still painful. But because you have so many painkillers going on, you're not really conscious. You know, it's like a fog. And so if it takes three or four days to pass from this, and I'm going to get increasing amounts of morphine and increasingly be in this unconscious, I'd rather just say, okay, this is happening. There's no treatment available to me. My daughter lives in Atlanta, emergency call to her, get her up here and take the medication. I don't want her to watch three or four days of suffering. I don't understand the point of that. Why drag it out? <laughs> you know, why not just take the Aiden dying medication and say goodbye with consciousness and and be done with it? So I would have died many times if it were not for medical intervention. So for me, my reasoning is if I would been kept alive by medical intervention, then why if I'm dying painfully and slowly can't I use medical intervention to die, to hasten that process? At this point, she's had the medication ready to go for more than six months, but she's still here. I've had three rounds of hospice. I don't know. My body is not, <laughs> it's not going along with the program. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this question, but I guess I'll just ask it. Um, do you want to die? Hmm. I don't want to not die. For example, I had a woman who was praying for me that I live 30 more years. 
And she was also concerned that I was committing suicide by having the prescription. And I asked her, these are letters going back and forth, to stop praying that I live 30 more years. That that didn't sound appealing to me because I didn't feel well. So the idea of going through 30 years not feeling well with a slowly degrading digestive system is not appealing. So I don't like want to die, but again, I I don't want to continue to live and get worse and worse and worse and worse for years. That's not appealing. The hardest thing is leaving loved ones. That's the thing that, you know, brings tears to my eyes or makes me sad. The grieving process is continuous. You're always grieving knowing that you're going to leave. It's just acceptance. Oh, there's grief again. Okay, there it is. And I've always believed in an afterlife, and I still do. I don't know what the afterlife is. I don't even attempt to guess. But I do believe that there's more than just the body. So that takes away a lot of the fear. I've gotten to a point where I honestly do not fear dying and I don't fear living. And I am beyond, like way beyond a hope for a miracle cure. It's this place that's very generous, spiritually generous. To not have fear and not have hope is really a a peaceful place to be. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. So, Zeke, with cases of COVID-19 on the rise again, right now, it feels like we'll be lucky if we can just get this thing under control. Do you think there's any chance we'll we'll use this crisis as an opportunity to do things better? Uh, Not only end-of-life care, but, you know, for the whole healthcare system. Peg Sandine told us that COVID-19 might be encouraging people to write or revisit their advanced care plans. Are there other reasons to be hopeful? Well, you know, when it comes to end-of-life care, we know that when it's in the news, when there's a big case and it's being covered, people do really rethink their advanced care plans. They do think more about end-of-life care. They talk to their family. But once that fades from the news, um, it sort of goes back to baseline, and we really don't have a big fundamental change. On the other hand, I do think the fissures, the sort of inequities of the healthcare system, 
the fact that minorities and people with low income are not really getting the same level of care as well-off whites, I think that actually is an issue that's going to persist and is going to lead to positive change. So on that one, I actually am somewhat optimistic we're going to get some reform. Yeah, this is the last uh, episode of this season, and I, I think this the inequities of our healthcare system, not only the end of life, but throughout life, that's a thread that's run through all of our episodes in one way or another. So, you know, let's hope that we can actually take advantage of this terrible problem. And in a few years, we can look back and say that was the beginning of the real change in our country's approach to giving health care, appropriate health care, timely health care, quality health care to everybody, and not just at the end of life. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel, created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. Music in this episode by Chris Zabriskie. And special thanks to Rebecca Schlesinger and Val Lovelace. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.